This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books and Education podcast. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck about their new book, The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education, published in 2021 by John Hopkins University Press. Whether and how to reform to transform graduate education has been a matter for debate, discussion, and experimentation for the past 30 years, at least. In the new PhD, Lynn Casuto and Bob Weisbuck look back at the many attempts, successes, and failures since the 1990s. More importantly, they propose what they call a more humane and socially dynamic PhD experience that reconceives of graduate education as a public good, not a hermetically sealed cloister. Before we begin our discussion of Lynn and Bob's assessment of the current state of graduate education and their recommendations for a change, a full disclosure from the interviewer. I co-direct the Humanity Center at the University of California, Irvine, and we have participated in several of the initiatives that Lynn and Bob assess and critique in their book. So it's probably not surprising that I'm excited to talk to them about the new PhD. So welcome, Bob and Lynn. Thank you. Thanks. So as a start, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to write this book. And Bob, I'll have you start because, as you mentioned, you've been doing this since the 1990s. I've been doing, uh, trying for PhD reform since the 1990s, but I've been teaching students since 1972. And during my 25 years at the University of Michigan, I had any number of excellent graduate students who were not able to fulfill the one goal, the narrow goal that we set for them, which was to become a professor at a research university or a selective small college. And I saw a lot of terrifically talented people losing years of their lives, trying to find a way to stay in academia, when in fact, it occurred to many of us that they would be terribly valuable across all social sectors. And so that set me on the path of thinking about what we name as our goal for PhDs. So I've been thinking and writing about higher education for more than a decade, but it occurred to me a while ago that one of the reasons that the, that the work has excited me and continues to excite me, and I think will continue to excite me, is because uh, there are a lot of ways in which I simply haven't forgotten what it was like to be a graduate student, what it was like to rem- to face the kinds of uncertainties that graduate students were facing even in the 1980s. The, the uh, academic job market was anything but healthy in the 1980s, although compared to today, it would be a model of physical fitness. But uh, it certainly didn't feel that way in the 80s. And I, I remember what it felt to be a grad, what it felt like to be a graduate student 
in those times. And for whatever reasons, I think that I've continued to think about it. And so it's been satisfying and gratifying to be able to put those those experiences to work in uh, in my career. I think both of us are pretty much haunted by a statement from one former graduate student in history who said, I know what I know, but I don't know what to do with what I know. And our idea is that departments, programs, really should make that part of their business of doctoral education, what to do with what you know. So I have to admit that I, as I was reading the book, um, I did have flashbacks to graduate school. And uh, there were moments when I was reading where I was uh, just thought, oh, yes, that exactly exactly describes um, both the positive and the uh, not so positive experiences of being a, a PhD student. So can you give us an overview of what you see as the key shortcomings of graduate education, as well as some of the attempts to reform it over the past 30 years? Sure. The, the biggest problem with graduate school is simply that it's preparing graduate students for jobs that don't exist, and and this is a crucial second second part of this, it's it teaches graduate students to want those jobs above all others and to feel like failures when they don't get it. And when 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 your teacher, if you're teaching somebody to want something that you're in no position to supply, something that is ex- that exists in vanishingly small quantities, we you I, I guess we we are teaching students to be unhappy. And there's practically no worse thing for a teacher to be doing. So whatever we can say about how we should cure graduate school, and we will have, we will have a few things to say about this, the problem is both simple and profound at the same time. We have to stop teaching graduate students to, to be unhappy. And uh, the, to, the three main ideas that we're bringing forward in our book is that if, if graduate school is going to start teaching graduate students to be happy and fulfilled in their professional lives, then graduate school needs to be, number one, student-centered, number two, career diverse, number three, public-facing and socially committed. And in the process, especially of being the last one of those, it will attract, uh, gra- if graduate school is, uh, has, a, has a social commitment, a, uh, a sense of, of engagement with the community, then we have a better chance to attract members from underrepresented groups whom survey after survey shows are more interested in the graduate enterprise if it provides them a chance to give back. So we'll have more to say about each one of those three over the course of this interview, for sure. But those are the three overarching themes. You know, most of us in, in reform efforts can probably in our sleep, <laughs> describe the problems. The PhD as, a, as too often a bridge to nowhere in terms of professional life. Uh, the PhD is taking so long that it warps the lives of, of those who are attempting to complete the degree. The fact that so many people leave the degree before completing it, often though, after having spent years pursuing it, um, the, the sense that it can be so hermetic that it really doesn't 
as Len just suggested, face outward and think about how what you know can relate to the social urgencies of our time or any time. And, and these are problems that have existed not just for five years or 10 years, they're perennials. And, and they, they're quite well known. And that's why in our book, we really emphasize not just what the problems are, but okay, we all know this now, what are we gonna do about it? I think you know it was the year 2000 when there was an online graduate student survey, Nat, uh, National Association of Graduate and Professional Students. And one of their conclusions was, yeah, we all know what the problems are. Uh, you don't need to do a lot more thinking about this can you start doing something? And how we get to that is certainly one of the themes in our book. You do a really good job of summarizing the um, various attempts to, um, to do this kind of reform. And as I mentioned at the beginning, UC Irvine has participated in uh, some of these programs and continues to uh, be involved in various attempts to um, reform, transform, change, um, drag into the 21st century uh, graduate education. Um, but, you know, we're still, we are still facing these problems. Um, and what, why, why are we not moving forward? Why are we having so many challenges um, to making change. And you specifically talk about um, the resistance as coming, um, the resistance that be, that's attitudinal, institutional, and intellectual. Uh, so can you talk about can, those three forms of resistance and um, how, how can we engage with and address those forms of resistance um, when we're um, taking, um, making attempts of, to change? I think we're learning how to change. I think some of the more recent reforms have really been thinking harder about how you do go from discussing a problem to enacting solutions to those problems. And so I think there's been a real advance in that. But many of the reforms from the 1990s and, and uh, 2000 decade uh, really were either top down. For instance, the Mellon Foundation had a time to degree program, spent over $80 million trying to encourage departments to shorten the ever-expanding time it took for students to get a PhD degree, where it had reached seven and nine years in many fields, and, and really was not able to move the ball very far, was able perhaps to cut off a month or two overall, which is a, not a lot when you're spending $80 million on 55 programs. And there, I think the problem was it, it was a top-down effort. The faculty never fully bought into it. The faculty worried about excellence and so on and did not come up with a very imaginative sense in many cases of how you might achieve excellence in a more reasonable amount of time and so on. And then on the other hand, uh, uh, the Carnegie Fund, had a wonderful program that had uh, faculty thinking of themselves as stewards of the discipline and asking themselves questions about what worked and didn't in their program. There, the problem was that, that uh, there was no way to go from those discussions to actually saying, what are we going to do? And so when we talk about the difficulty of change in graduate education, part of it has to do with the fact that graduate education is perhaps the most traditional of a tradition-bound academy. And that's a great thing in the sense that we don't follow every little fad uh, to our distraction. 
it's not so good when times change and we don't respond in any way. And so there's that aspect. There's the aspect that it's quite natural for people to imagine that their experience is normative. But the fact is that our tenured professors at research universities and small colleges are sort of the academic equivalent of Bernie Sanders 1%. Their experience has not been normative. It's been extraordinary. And, and to think you're going to be able to create mini-me's is really not realistic. But perhaps the most basic problem with graduate education is the lack of administrative oversight. Uh, Derek Bach called uh, uh, doctoral education in the arts and sciences the, the most poorly administered aspect of any university. He said that just recently, 2013, relatively recently. Well, that is to say, graduate deans often lack the resources, both financial and authoritative, to be able to incentivize change and to discourage bad practice. It's just the graduate dean is, is really at sort of at the bottom rung of the deanships and is often seen as an interloper by other deans and by faculty in many of the schools. That has to change because really without, without some kind of administrative oversight, some notion of how you, how you reward and how you challenge, it's very hard to get anything done. And so we say again and again in the book, here's how you do it if you lack that kind of an administrative structure. But we also, because you can, it's not an excuse for doing nothing. But we also say it really shouldn't be this hard. And presidents and provosts, those who are responsible for the basic administrative structure of the university, we plead with them to join us and to empower the graduate dean more greatly so that she can empower change. So we we spend a fair chunk of time in our book talking about failures of the past because there's a lot that we can learn from those failures as we embark upon whatever sorts of reforms people choose for their own campus cultures in the present. But as Bob recounted in some of the some of the examples that he just gave, faculty didn't buy in or they they took the money and ran whatever well, faculty are always the main players. We call for graduate school to be reconceived as a student-centered enterprise. There's a way that that is, seems obvious. Graduate school is school after all. And so why wouldn't it be about the students? And undergraduate education is resolutely student-centered in this country. And, the, and higher education started as an undergraduate enterprise in, in America before there was a United States. So there's a, a long history of student-centeredness. And if you look, uh, uh, you know, undergraduate teaching and undergraduate learning is a robust scholarly field in its own right. People study it, uh, even if it's not your main focus. If you're in a discipline, you can uh, find, book, find books and articles on how to teach undergraduates. If you look for something similar, what, the literature of graduate teaching, the literature of graduate teaching is uh, nearly non-existent. We could say, okay, well, why is this? And the, an the answer is simply that graduate school is historically and traditionally faculty-centered, not student-centered. Its graduate education is, has, has been seen and still is increasingly seen as an offshoot of faculty research. Every time a student sits in a seminar and where the, the subject of the seminar 
is the professor's next book. That's an example of faculty-centered, faculty-centered graduate education. When uh, science, when be, when incoming science graduate students find which laboratory they're going to enter and which professor's research is going to become the basis for their own, which is the basis for graduate student culture in the sciences, that's another example of faculty-centeredness. So if we're going to think about student-centered graduate education, as we suggest, it runs against historical currents and it runs against the practices of the present. um, Doing Executing reforms centered on bringing students forward, it's more difficult than it sounds. And that's one of the reasons why we offer a number of suggestions and examples of best practices in the book. So you mentioned time to degree. Time degree is like opening up a huge can of worms um, because really everything that you talk about in the book um, impacts time to degree. and. Um, the um, so rather than try to address it, um, the kind of big elephant in the room, I think it is actually uh, good for us to talk about the some of the individual components because they all um, that you go address in this book because they they all then contribute to you know how long it takes graduate students um, to finish their PhDs. Um, but I have to admit that it is kind of hard to. Um, disentangle all of these um, different components. And I, I think that you uh, did an admirable job in the book attempting to disentangle. So hopefully my questions will um, allow you to do that um, as we talk through the book. And um, you start um, at the very beginning with um, admissions. And you assert that if programs open the admissions conversation, not just to cohort size, but also to cohort characteristics, then we can right-size PhD programs at a level that is both viable and responsible. So how do we think about admissions and attrition in creating a more diverse PhD cohort and humane graduate experience? So the best way to begin an answer to this question is to talk is to, is to bring forward a metaphor that we're fond of that uh, was was um, devised by Michael Barabay when he was president of the Modern Language Association. Where he talked about uh, the problems of graduate school as a seamless garment of crisis, where you start tugging on one on one one particular issue, and pretty soon the entire garment has unraveled into a, a heap of thread at your feet. So the idea. Uh, the interconnectedness of all of these problems. We we uh, we thank you for your good words, because disaggregating a lot of these issues uh, in order to talk about them was difficult. Not least because they are not disaggregated in real life. They're all they're tangled up and they're connected. And admissions is in some ways a poster child for all of this, because uh, our work is dedicated not so much to the idea that that you should reform your practice in this way or that particular way, but rather that you should, we ask all practitioners and students too, and administrators to uncover the assumptions that structure your practice. Uncover them so that we can all see them, so that we can examine them, and we can see whether the assumptions 
that were once in place that led to the, to the way that a practice was devised at one time still obtain? The answer to why do you do it this way in academia generally and in graduate school in particular, the answer is always because that's the way we've always done it. But that the way that we've always done it had a reason at one time. If we learn what that reason was once and ask whether it still is, then we can all make better decisions about what to do next. So consider the case of admissions. In order to admit students to graduate school, there's a ritual. We ask them to imagine their research project, which is essentially a junior version of how can you imagine yourself as a faculty member at a research university? It's a ritual. And you could say, well, it's a fiction because how can somebody be expected to imagine their dissertation before they're even in graduate school at all? But its defenders will say this is a useful fiction because you get to see people thinking about a problem that will allow uh, people who are making admissions decisions to see how the applicant's mind, is work, mind works. But how useful is that prompt if we know that, our, that the people whom we admit are going to go on to all kinds of diverse outcomes. And in fact, if we talk, if we use a phrase alt-ac, which is often, which is, which is in currency, but we don't much care for, uh, if we're really going to talk about alt-careers, the alt-career now is professor. And so when we have an admissions ritual that is demanding students to conceive of themselves as, the ki- as, as, a, as a research university professor, we're socializing them to want this thing even before we admit them. And so the admissions process becomes just the first step in a coercive, an unfolding process that leads students into this web of unhappiness that we described in the beginning. So if, it, if admissions is going to be reformed, then it needs to be coordinated with the rest of graduate education. And if graduate education is going to correspond, is going to teach students to be ready for the reality that they're actually going to face, well then, we need to, we need to, uh, to conceive of admissions uh, as proceeding from a different set of assumptions than it proceeds from now. Here's a question I've never seen on, a, on an application form for doctoral education. What do you plan to do with your PhD? And again, it goes to Len's point that that's assumed, and the assumption is false in eight out of 10 cases, probably. And so it's a question that doesn't get asked because the thought is that there's already an answer. The answer, unfortunately, as one student said to me, is the equivalent of a Ponzi scheme, preparing students for jobs that don't exist in most cases. And so again, what if you had, for instance, a student who said, you know, I'd like to get the PhD because eventually I want to be teaching uh, my this field in high school, and I'd like to become eventually the curriculum director of a district. Uh, there's a good shot that that student will not be admitted to a doctoral program because she's suggested a goal that is not the narrow accepted goal of all too many programs. And yet, it's such a good question. It's such a rich question that can have any number of answers. We're losing, perhaps, even in the admissions process, any number of extraordinarily interesting people whose main goal in life might not be to become that tenured professor. I, um, 
I will add uh, just also a personal experience um, because I'll, I might comment on it as we go along. I had a, um, got a master's degree in international studies. So it was a terminal master's. Then I spent 11 years working for cultural nonprofits and working quite a bit with uh, people who had PhDs. And I decided that I wanted to get a PhD in history uh, because I wanted the scholarly training. I felt like it would be beneficial to me. But my expectation was actually that I would not stay in academia, that I would go back most likely into the uh, nonprofit sector. And I, um, I had that experience of uh, going into and through graduate school of constantly presenting uh, myself as um, uh, having a, as focused on a faculty career because that was the expectation um, um, from the moment of admissions. Even though even the faculty who um, you know wrote my uh, letters and you know accepted me into the program who I'd worked with when I was a master's student knew that that wasn't my intention. Um, so it really is a um, very much a performance um, of of that as the role, even when faculty who are interested in accepting students, you know, may know that other faculty in the department would um, not be in favor of that. So it's, um, you know, I, I do see this point that, you know, from the very moment of admissions, there is this uh, gatekeeping that happens. Yeah, Bob. Well, this is a personal confession that Len has heard me make before. But when I was a, a faculty member at the University of Michigan in the 80s at some point, I did have a student uh, who told me as she was heading toward her dissertation that her goal was to teach in high school. And, and I said at the time, well, that's not what we gave you a fellowship for. That same student is now my hero. Okay, and so I'm aware as, as someone who's been in education for quite a while now, I mean, I came with all those traditional uh, ideals and prejudices of, of a kind of apprenticeship model. And we just need to get it in our heads that that model has been outmoded now for nearly 50, 50 years. So, you know, once students get um, accepted, there's obviously coursework, there are exams, and uh, those things are so highly linked to each other uh, that I had a hard time trying to come up with a question that would um, uh, distinguish them. But what really struck me uh, about and thinking about curriculum, uh, there were two quotes uh, that I'm going to read back to you because I think they um, really highlight the challenges around curriculum, what really is at the um, most fundamentally um, the challenges the, of uh, putting to get thinking of graduate school as a curriculum. And the first um, quote is, the lack of a teaching community in most departments and programs leads to a neglect of curricular planning, let alone discussion of actual teaching. And an ongoing debate about the nature of a discipline can be important for facu graduate faculty informing a teaching community and beneficial for students to see issues elucidated rather than hidden. And I thought about that in terms of, you know, as you said, um, there's not a lot of attention paid to 
uh, pedagogy at the graduate level. And there's also often not a lot of attention paid to um, the discipline itself. Um, you know, what is this discipline that uh, students are being trained in and trained as scholars or scientists in? Um, so can you talk about both these underlying um, um, problematic ways of thinking, I guess. And then also, uh, what is some of your advice on how to address graduate school curriculum? So probably the single most important practical precept that we have on offer in our book, something that we apply in all, uh, we, we, uh, we suggest applying in all different ways is the idea of reverse engineering. That is, the idea that you imagine what it is your goal is and work backwards from your goal. In the case of for ex- curriculum and exams that you that you raised, I found myself as you were as you were asking the question, remembering what you'd said earlier too about how time to degree is something that's so pervasive that we can bracket it because it's bound to come up. Well, this is one case where it comes up. Because if we imagine what's the goal of coursework, say, well, one goal of coursework is so that we can give to our students the basic principles and fundamental knowledge of our discipline that will allow them to build on it in whatever their distinctive and individual way will be as they go further and deeper into their studies. And we want them to do this most expeditiously because why would we want them to take longer to do this? Because that's more time out of their lives. So to do this efficiently is just another way that time to degree enters into this. But to think backwards, then, if we try, if we try to envision curriculum from, our, from the point of view of our students, then we may wind up offering some different classes than we do. And this is particularly true in the humanities, because uh, in the humanities, this sort of uh, grab bag approach uh, where, you, where we're all going to go to the grocery, sp- grocery store, but when we get to the grocery store, all we see for sale is sriracha sauce, lemongrass, and preserved plums. You know, the, uh, the different speci- hyper-specialized seminars that, uh, that professors are offering in their niche area of specialization, well, that doesn't serve students because then they're going to have to go out and get their basic nourishment somewhere else on their own time, and it will take them longer. So if we reverse engineer the idea of curriculum from the student's point of view, we're getting student-centered graduate education that is aimed at the actual reality that they're going to face afterwards, and the courses then have to conform. There's, there's, a, way that the way, there's a way that graduate school functions today according to the model of the 1960s, not only because, as Bob said, that's the last time when, if you got a PhD, you could expect to be able to walk into a faculty job, but also because the numbers of graduate students who were in graduate school at that time during that era was so large that faculty members could offer whatever courses they wanted with the pretty certain knowledge that if students were interested in something else, they'd find it somewhere else. That humanities departments in at, at, at state universities in the United States during the 1960s were regularly and routinely accepting more than 100 students a year. 
that means a lot of courses. And if you have a lot of courses, then the, the, the question of where, where is a student going to get the fundamentals with the meat and potatoes, you, somebody might choose to put, uh, uh, to, to put sriracha sauce on sale, but somebody else is going to offer some um, basic uh, potatoes and greens. So the, uh, right now, of course, our numbers are quite a bit different. But our, mo our model, this kind of free enterprise grocery store model, it's, uh, the, uh, that model prevails even though the realities that face our students are enormously different. This is an example of how we need to examine the assumptions that structure our practice and adjust our practice accordingly in whatever ways make sense at a particular campus for its particular graduate student culture. It's a matter of missing conversations in many of these cases. The conversations that don't occur that logically must. For instance, what should our curriculum look like this semester in order to serve our students' interests best? How do we take whatever we're offering and identify what we're asking students to do to the students so that they will understand what it what 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 kinds of abilities they are garnering through this course and be able to generalize from it and so on, or again in terms of pedagogy, which you mentioned, uh, Amanda. They, you know, instead of saying, uh, in, instead of simply assigning graduate students to the courses that faculty themselves don't want to teach, over and over again the introductory course, rather than saying, what kind of progression of experiences will allow our students to become great educators, not only in the academy, but in whatever social sector they choose to join, because teaching is a part of, of life and, and, and of career in any activity. How can we make them full, to, full educators by their experiences over a four or five year period? And so there are these missing conversations. And of course, the biggest missing one, I want to go back to the elephant in the room, as you called it, time to degree, for just a minute, I want to try to, this is a bad metaphor, tackle the, the elephant, okay, for a second. And that is to say um, that when we think of undergraduate education, we know that all students don't finish in four years, but there's a four-year expectation. And we don't just say, what are all the great things that we should do uh, uh, to prepare a student to earn the BA? we say, what can we do within a four-year period that will be most valuable to an undergraduate experience? Uh, how long does the PhD take? How many years? Exactly. I mean, there is no answer. And so you expand and you expand and you expand, and, and it gets longer and longer and longer. What if you were to say, let's say you took uh, Louis Menand's uh, argument uh, from a few years ago, where he said, really, you know, a PhD should take no more than three years. Law school takes three years, med school, four years, PhD, three years. That's what it should take. Um, very few people might agree with that, but it would be a great exercise to have a department or a program think about if we had to do it all in three years, what would we get rid of? What would we need to keep? What would, how would we reorganize in order to make that happen? And then having gone through that difficult exercise, well, you have another year or two, perhaps reasonably, to build in some new aspects of the PhD that would serve the student's particular interests better. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And exams are really crucially part of that curriculum because you know, exams are, um, as you say in the book, both forward-looking and um, looking back, um, assessing what the student has learned as well as an opportunity to help the student um, position themselves for the next steps um, in the degree program. Um, and yet um, exams uh, can often be part of that um, stretching out um, uh, the first couple of years into the first uh, you know, three or four years. Uh, how do we fix exams? So if we see, if we see our graduate students taking uh, an amount of time to prepare for their general exams that we consider to be too long. Okay, so if a group of faculty get together and they and they our our students are are stretching out the period uh, leading up to exams. Well, on the one hand, this ought to provoke the kinds of questions that we've been describing in connection with curriculum and admissions. The kinds of questions that will strip away the veneer to reveal the assumptions that undergird the practice. So we can say, what is it about our exams that are making our student that's making our students take so long to prepare for them, that's making them feel so so nervous about uh, about advancing to candidacy. And we might find some answers that relate to course to the coursework, or we might find simply that there's a culture of expectation that uh, that fa- that certain faculty are expecting certain kinds of performance on the exam that is maybe out of line with the the, uh, the uh, kinds of dissertations that are going to proceed. Uh, or perhaps some combination of the forward and the backward that you just described that we that we elaborate in the book. But there is something something else as well. There's the the idea that um, the exam. Oh no, I lost my train of thought. Um, the uh, well, the, I think one of the things that you're suggesting is that is that the exam, as considered now, is often a wall. It's a block. It's it and and uh, and we all know about the post exam depression that often occurs where where students lose a so, year so or two. Bob, hang on, I, I remember yeah. now. So let me finish. The sure. uh, it's uh, so the, this unfortunate gap. Let it let let this gap be edited out, and we'll say the the thing about the exam and this lack of information. This points to something very important that we call for at different times in the book. We need to know what our students' priorities are. We need to know what our students are thinking about the education that they're receiving. And that it's, it's a job too often performed by, by faculty and administration to find out, to survey students, find out what they're thinking about the education that they're receiving, or in the case of recent graduates, the education that they've just received, or in the case of non-completers, the education that they've chosen to depart from. If, if, if we educators gather the information that about what our students are understanding about what we are doing, then we can construct practices such as exams that are more sensible because they correspond 
to what we want, not only what we want our students to do, but what our students think they are doing. I have a confession to make, another confession. I, I, I received a, a PhD in, in English, in literature, and I had an exam to take, uh, you know, the, the typical exam. And what I want to confess is that for two weeks before I took that exam, my last two weeks before taking that exam were spent reading master plots, plot summaries of books I had not read. You know, that was demeaning. It felt criminal to some extent. I certainly would never, I, I think this is the first time I've confessed it after nearly 50 years, and I won't confess it again. But again, the exam was unreasonable in such a way, or at least my expectations for that exam, that it led me to do something that, that at best I would, I would call childish and unfortunate. And again, it seems like we want to think of the exam in, as Len suggests, individual terms. What is the student's particular goal? How is the exam fulfilling that goal? And as a door rather than a wall, a door to the next and final stage of the doctoral experience, typically a dissertation cornerstone project, rather than you got to get through this and then regroup, and then you can start thinking about the final project. That should be part of part of the exam process itself. Yeah, I will. Um, and this is nothing against my uh, PhD committee. I just want to say that I really enjoyed working with all of them. But my PhD exams consisted of rewriting essentially the papers that I had already written for the four, four faculty on my committee at, during the independent studies that I did with them when I was doing all my reading. So I'd written these papers, gotten comments, discussed them with them. And then I essentially, for the most part, rewrote those papers, you know, in a timed setting over a two week period, uh, four sessions um, as my exam. And it seemed surprisingly inefficient to me as a way of testing my um, knowledge um, and uh, what knowledge I gained. Uh, I thought, you know, you already know that I know this or don't know this because I've already written these papers for you. But, um, but it is a, um, in, you know, thinking carefully, it really struck me of, of this, um, in a sense, backwards engineering of, of what really do we want our students to know at this point about their discipline, about the discipline that they're in, about the potential areas of specialization that they're that they want to have, um, what kind of pedagogical training do we want them to have, um, and what do we want them to be prepared for to undertake the dissertation project that they plan to um, enter into um, as the next step, and then think about curriculum and exams. Um, and it sounds so obvious, you know, when we say it out loud, um, but it is not necessarily obvious in the way that curriculum and exams um, and dissertations have accreted, I think, in academic programs. Yes, and your, your exam experience sounds like a uselessly repetitious exercise that was marinated in a, in a pot full of tension for a period of, mo of probably months ding, 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 time to degree, there we are again. And so what was gained out of this? And I, I, I agree with you. There's a, there's a good chance that, you're, that the fa your faculty examiners never looked closely at what they were doing, I will say generously with you, but we, I could also say to you, 
uh, and ask what's what's the benefit from this to you or anyone else so time time and effort lost so you know the next step after exams is the dissertation the research project the you know evidence of one's own um, uh, scholarly scientific work and you point out the disciplinary difference between the overdetermined life of the library of the sorry the library the laboratory for apprentice scientists and the laissez-faire advising that can go on in the humanities so how do these differences play out at the dissertation stage and what would a dissertation look like for the new phd i think that there the answer for what the dissertation would look like in the new PhD is let a thousand flowers blossom. That is, it would it would have a much more variegated set of possibilities than your typical uh, fake book has now, an imitation of a book in a sense. Um, but yes, you know, one of the things that really surprised us in the writing of, of the new PhD was to discover how much in many ways uh, the, the sciences, the social sciences and the humanities have in common. Time to degree is, is an issue, for instance, in all three. Career issues in all three, and so on and so forth. The National Academy of Science put out an excellent report a couple of years ago uh, called STEM Education in the 21st Century. Urge everyone to read it, even if you're not in the sciences, because much of their recommendations about the sciences would apply to the humanities, social sciences as well. But you do hit on a major difference between the sciences and, and other disciplines when it comes to the dissertation phase. In the sciences, uh, and again, it's not uniform, there are degrees of difference, but in all too many cases, the student is made into a kind of lab rat who performs the work of one portion of the faculty member's grant and doesn't have the opportunity then to have the important, crucial, intellectual experience of asking a question devised by oneself. Now, again, that's not always the case. Even when you're working on part of a faculty member's grant, you, you may, if you have a, an enlightened uh, mentor, have opportunities to be highly creative, but all too often you don't. And even though every science report from every national science organization for the last 40 years has argued for a greater proportion of money going to training grants that put the student experience first and less money going to research grants, which tend to ignore the student interest. Even though all those organizations have argued for this for so many decades, the trend has been exactly in the opposite direction and often from these organizations themselves in terms of their sponsored funding. That's not okay. And that really needs to change. Very often in the humanities and humanistic social sciences, on the other hand, you have a kind of uh, MIA, missing in action, uh, by the dissertation uh, advisor. And students can very easily drift without, without direction or checkpoints or whatever. I was very fortunate in having a dissertation director who said a chapter a month, and I'll have it back to you in a week. And sure enough, we got it done and, and you know, but that was, that was more the exception than the rule. And very often people simply get lost in their own thinking, don't, don't have an opportunity really to get the kind, of, the kind of encouragement, feedback, and even editing 
that would allow them to go forward in a timely way. So in both cases, we're at extremes where we need mix. Seem, seems to us that you can always learn from, from past practice. That one generation in the 1960s when academia was growing so fast that anybody who finished a PhD could get an academic, jo- an academic job, a, a tenure-track professorship, even to the point of being able to pick out which region of the country you'd want to work in, that, during that decade, uh, when the demand for PhDs outstripped the supply, imagine that, uh, the, uh, that we're so nostalgically attached to that one, to that 10-year period, that ought to explain part of the reason why. But um, that, uh, during that period, the uh, dissertation requirements were much lower than they are today because there was an understandable imperative to let's let get people out there so that they can get they can take these jobs the schools need them we benefit from getting them out there so let's just do this so dissertation requirements have always been historically contingent we can we learn this lesson from history they are a product of the historical conditions in which graduate school is taking place ironically the discipline of history has been slow to reckon with this among others i want to say a lot of the humanities disciplines have had their problems with this and the sciences as well. But as barriers to entry to academia went up, so did dissertation requirements over time. Today, we're, we, we live in a distorted world where dissertations take years, where graduate school takes the better part of a decade and um, with little assurance for the people who are in it that they're going to achieve the outcome that we've taught them to want. It's a, it's a bizarro world. But if we're going to break out of this, we need to do the same thing. We need to look at what are the assumptions that undergird the practice? What are the assumptions that guide the practice? If the goal of a dissertation is, to, uh, is for a student to do a capstone work in a discipline that demonstrates disciplinary expertise and prepares the student for the diversity of outcomes that await her, then how can we design a dissertation that satisfies those requirements and allows the student to, uh, to, get, to get out of graduate school before her hair turns all gray? So these are, are, are practical questions that we're, you know, we're pretty smart. We can answer them. We just have to ask them. I'd like to remind people now uh, who, who are in a position to uh, appoint assistant professors, that when I was a department chair, even in the 1980s, um, we did not expect graduate students to publish extensively while they were in graduate school. We would read a dissertation chapter or two to see how promising it was. And the idea that the dissertation might then become something that could be shared in general, in the discipline, in a book form or in a series of essays and articles or whatever, that was how we judged. We judged potential. We did not expect that all of the work that we thought of as something you did over several years of being an assistant professor was meant to be done while you were still in graduate school. The advantage of doing it as an assistant professor is you're being paid a living wage and, and you're getting along with your life as well. Whereas this arms race, where you now have to publish more and more, even to be considered for a first position, 
is really just retarding people's lives. So if typically, if typically a student takes a few years out after undergraduate education, comes into graduate school in their mid-20s, ends up perhaps not graduating until they are in their early mid-30s, that's, that's the longest adolescence imaginable. And it's too long. It doesn't make human sense. And the dissertation tends to be part of the problem there as well. I also think this emphasis on publication, uh, certainly in the humanities, perhaps not in the sciences, doesn't take into account that um, impact in the humanities takes a longer time to develop. If you, I think, you know, if you publish in the sciences, maybe it has a more immediate impact, but, um, you know, unless you truly are, you know, one of these <laughs> brilliant groundbreaking people, for, for most people, their scholarship, it takes a while to, um, to make a difference in the field. And um, I, I will give myself as an example, you know, I went back um, to graduate school to get a PhD for two reasons. I felt that having greater scholarly training as a historian would benefit me in the work that I did outside of academia. And I also had some particular um, scholarly interests as a historian where I thought I could do research and make a contribution because I didn't see research happening in that area. I wrote my dissertation. Uh, I published two articles, uh, each uh, one addressing one of the key um, scholarly contributions I felt that I made. Um, you know, they were published right after, at the time I was graduating, right after 2013, 2014, um, maybe 2015, when they actually came out. And, you know, five years later, they're being cited. They're being cited in books, they're being cited in dissertations, they're being cited in articles. But it's taken five years. You know, if I had been dependent on those articles um, to get me an academic job, um, you know, who knows whether or not they're, you know, sure they were published in uh, well-respected journals in my field, but, you know, there's no saying whether or not they're actually important at that point. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's, there's you know, um, expectations being placed on, you know, what the, um, um, what does publication and also um, a burden on the publication industry uh, um, um, sector to do the work um, of um, of doing the review process and the decision making process because the reality is they have more submissions than they can publish and their timelines are um, often a lot longer than someone's job search timeline. So, yeah, the the publication um, as part of the job search I think has. Um, real concerns for graduate students' ability to get jobs in academia, you know, even on top of everything else. Well, as but I want to go... I just want to say the fetishization of publication additionally obscures the, the variety of work that a, pro, that a professional intellectual, either in or out of academia, does and will do. That, if, that when we fetishize traditional publication, we discourage students from exploring the, all the different ways that they can engage with the different publics that are before them. We've talked about the importance of public-facing graduate education, and this is one, one way it, that that comes into play. 
Yeah. And that's exactly what I'd like to move to next. Um, and that is um, talking about training graduate students in public scholarship and, and also building off my own experience, having worked in cultural nonprofits for 11 years, I worked with a lot of people who had PhDs um, in museums, in nonprofits, in foundations, in, you know, uh, local government arts commissions. And, you know, so I, I, I was actually very surprised when I got into a PhD program and realized the extent to which, um, uh, graduate training in the humanities in the United States, certainly in history, uh, from my experience, was so focused on what seemed to me vocational training to be a, um, um, a professor. And it occurred to me that um, that was such a lost opportunity to think broadly about um, what people with PhDs uh, could do in the broader world. And you uh, ha have a great statement um, that I think leads to this, uh, speaks to this. It says, learning how to reach multiple audiences is not just a skill. It's a way of looking at the world that enables you to see complementary alternatives to specialization and a need to forge ties outside the small world of specialists. So how do you see this um, training in public scholarship incorporated into graduate training? Well, as, you know, as, as historian Tom Bender said several years ago, uh, all scholars need to be bilingual. That is, yes, they need to be able to speak the language, the lexicon of their academic discipline, but they also need to be able to speak to a broad audience, a broad public audience. And by the way, that's something that every faculty member does every, every teaching day of their life. As soon as you walk into an undergraduate classroom, let's say, or even a graduate classroom, and you are carrying your expertise and speaking with people who are not already expert in your discipline, you have become a public scholar. You are practicing bilingualism, so to speak. You are, you are speaking lingua franca if you are an effective teacher. There are really a couple of different ways that you can become a public intellectual. There, well, there's innumerable ways, but perhaps two categories. One of them is simply being able to interest other people in why you do what you do and why it's important and why it might have social interest and benefits and so on. And that can mean writing for popular publications, the New York or the Atlantic, but it could also mean just showing up at your local library and giving a talk and taking questions. Uh, any number of ways to do that. Second kind of, the second kind of uh, public scholarship, which is modeled now very often in undergraduate education, is, is to engage yourself with various community challenges or regional urgencies and so on, bringing your academic knowledge into the world, but also learning yourself from experiential practice in ways that you can bring back into, into ac the academy. It's sort of two-way learning going on. And so there is the kind of social engagement that's available to scholars in in one way or another. So to be a public scholar is really uh, inevitable. The question is how we're going to make it more attractive and how we're going to be able to uh, uh, count it as an achievement when it's, when it's successful. We have to find ways actually to assess public scholarship because it's certainly possible to fail at something. And if we can't say that something is, 
is valuable or not valuable, it's very hard to count it toward someone's career achievement. But the idea that, that, that it, and, and there's a larger idea to this as well, Amanda, and that is that, um, you know, people talk about, well, is, is higher education about learning for its own sake, or is it about furthering a career, preparing yourself for a career? And those two alternatives, both of which are certainly viable, leave out a third and most important one, and that is education is a public good. That's why we emphasize public facing. The idea that especially in a democratic republic, every citizen has a a responsibility to think well, to be well-informed, but also well-reasoning, and that that's part of our job as educators is, is to contribute toward that public good. That's why, you know, in, in the 18th century, we had various religious groups form private colleges. It's why in the 19th century, the Morale Act created state universities. The idea that, that uh, our form of government, citizen-led, and our form of education needed to be married, needed to contribute each to the other. So you have, for instance, James Madison saying uh, that he has a vision of He says, liberty and learning, each leaning upon the other for their mutual and surest support. And and so you have the sense that uh, to be a public scholar is really the only kind of scholar you can be, but we have to now give it a kind of credit and a kind of incentivizing that we haven't done in the past. What's the opposite, someone once said, of public scholarship? Hermetic scholarship? And there's a, there certainly is a use for that, but 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 surely we want to issue outward. And as we know, universities are having a lot of uh, issues in terms of public relations. And we can talk endlessly in abstraction about why a university education is a good thing for a human being to achieve. But it's far more powerful to get out there and model it, to exemplify it in action than to speak in abstraction. And and so part of our job, especially at a time when there seems to be even a threat to the enlightenment idea of of, uh, trusting in evidence, in science, in reason, um, when, when even that seems to be undercut often by powerful figures in government at times, we are really at war in a certain way and we need to show the value of what we do more widely. So we've mostly talked at a conceptual level, actually, um, but your book contains a lot of super practical suggestions um, about curriculum, about admissions. You have examples um, of what departments and universities and graduate programs have done. And we just would have a three hour uh, podcast episode if we um, went into all of that detail. Uh, so I encourage um, uh, our listeners who are interested in really thinking about um, how to do this work um, in their university and at the local level um, to read your book as well as um, uh, other uh, things, certainly that uh, Lynn writes in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, but I, as we're wrapping up here, I actually want to jump back to the beginning of the book, to chapter two, um, 
The title of that is Purpose Then Path, A Practical Guide to Starting the Conversation. So what advice do you have for faculty and and administrators who want to build a a better graduate education and are trying to start or move forward the conversation in their department and on their campus? Well, Len already mentioned perhaps a first step, and that is a student survey. Find out what your students are experiencing in your program. You really don't know unless you ask. And I would not only ask current students, but recent alums, but especially those who have left the program without completing it what their experience was like. And you will discover that that the lives that students are leading are at some degree of variance with what your expectations were. So that's a very first step. What you do with that next, we think, is to ask yourself a really difficult question. What's your ultimate goal? Imagine that, let's say, Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Education is writing a story about your program five years from now. What's the lead paragraph? What do you want it to say? And from there, you can begin to plan backwards to say, if that were to happen, what would necessarily be the precondition for that? And what would be the precondition to that? And right back to first steps. So it seems to us that that first, you have to really ask the questions that we've been talking about in this hour, the questions that often don't get asked. A point that's made often is that is that what's most urgent is often what's not most important. That is, the departmental budget may be due next week. And so we have to focus on that. But in the meantime, we're not asking what possible resources could we achieve or bring to bear that we haven't yet. We need mission time. We need for faculty and students and administrators to take the time to step back and say, what's our purpose here? What's our goal? What do we want to change? What do we want to make better most? Once we do that, as Len suggested earlier, whatever we say is our chief goal is going to involve many other aspects of the program in order to achieve it. But we have to first know what it is that we're really after. I want to uh, just stress that idea, what's most urgent is not necessarily what's most important. This works on a group level, as Bob just suggested, that if a group is going to uh, have mission time, they need to affirmatively carve it out. So this is one of the suggestions that we make to departments, programs, administrators to create this mission time because uh, the, the quotidian urgencies can always overwhelm it. But there's a way that, that this idea, what is most urgent is, is not necessarily what's most important. It also operates on an individual level. So... Uh, whether you're an administrator, a faculty member, or a graduate student, you need to think about your own mission and create your own mission time in order to reflect on it. That there's graduate school, graduate education is filled with all kinds of practical uncertainties today, and they, they can easily take over and they can overwhelm. But we need to be thinking about the larger path through this. This is what we try to do in this book, with an eye to the past, our feet in the present, and another eye to the future. We're really interested in two things at once. One is certainly a happier, more fulfilling experience for students, not only in a graduate program, but in their life 
as it as, as it derives from that program in all the different possible ways. Uh, and and that's a very important good. You know, uh, someone at a at a conference that I attended, uh, who was a CEO of a major corporation, said, you know, why wouldn't I rather hire a PhD than a typical MBA? Your people know how to discover, they know how to think, they know how to bring a major research project to term, they know how to teach. I can, I can, you know, inform them about how to do a specific job in a matter of weeks. It would take me years to be able to help an, uh, you know, uh, an, an MBA who doesn't know how to teach, how to do research, how to do all the things that a PhD may know to, to reach that level. He said, why would I not rather hire a PhD? And then he stopped for a minute, paused and said, because your people don't apply. So that's major and that's about students. But then there is again, that other aspect that I mentioned a bit earlier, which is the social good. PhDs are extraordinary discoverers. They move during their PhD experience from being learners to being adventurers, discoverers more fully. They uh, think in a highly creative way. They're enormously intelligent and dedicated. They need to be contributors toward every aspect of our society. Every sector of our society can benefit from a greater, more diverse set of career opportunities for PhDs. We have a brain drain going on in the sense that we're telling our PhDs, you can only do this one thing within the academy. And the truth is that, that really these abilities are so widely applicable and not only for the happiness of the student, but for the future of the democracy. Well, Bob and Lynn, I really appreciate the time that you took um, to talk to me today about your book. Um, I especially appreciate the time that you took to write the book and to do the research and the people who you've talked to and um, just all the thinking that you've done about graduate education. And um, this has been a very thought-provoking conversation. It's a thought-provoking uh, book, and I hope that it will be an action-provoking book um, for uh faculty, administrators, and graduate students um, across the country who are uh, really care about um, graduate education um, and training um, scholars, scientists uh, who are going to be um, out in the world. So thank you again for uh, talking to us about the new PhD uh, for the New Books Network. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks very much for the opportunity.